Oh, just listen to that 4 liter per under hood. Oh, it's good. Oh, just listen to the shifts of this 5 speed. Oh, this Jeep is glory. Oh, oh boy. He's at the. Oh, no. Do you know why I pulled you over, son? Uh, or, or, sir? Son? Did you see my foot through the floorboard? Uh, maybe. Was it the exhaust hanging on the ground? Was that it? Not that I noticed, but... Oh, it's because I was doing 55 and a 54, right? <laughs> this vehicle couldn't do 55. Eh, that's fair, okay. Then what's the problem, officer? I don't believe this is a legally registered and insured vehicle. It looks like someone drove a riding lawnmower through a scrapyard. Ooh, that's cold. Don't worry, though. I've got insurance. I'll prove it's in insured and registered. Check it out. Let me just move this Taco Bell wrapper. Okay. Insurance, please. Uh, wait, I've got marble. Marbles? No, marble. It's the fast, free, and easy insurance app that lets you track all of your insurance policies by keeping them all in one place. Boom, there we go. Wow, this is great. Thanks, I actually bought this YJ a few weeks ago. No, not the car, the app. It has insurance for all of your weird cars in one place. Amazing! Most people I pull over waste my time trying to look up their insurance. Once you set it up, it actually monitors your insurance so you can get alerted if there's any rate increase. You know where I could sign up? Um, yeah, just go to marblepay.com autopian. Just marble... I got you, it's marblepay.com autopian. Welcome to the Autopian Podcast. We are back at season two. Things are about to get exciting. We have a special guest, Rod Emery, the world's one of the world's greatest Porsche customizers. Yeah. Um, and Originator I, of the outlaw well, concept. Well, I right? need to start. We're getting ahead of ourselves. I need to start with. I'm excited. Rod. We're very excited. Yeah. Is that short for push or for connecting? Uh, depends on who you're talking to. Mm. Okay. Good question, though, David. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, good, good dad joke to yeah, launch yeah, the good, uh, good, the good podcast job, with here. We're trying to impress too, our, our our special I'm, guest. That's all. Yeah, we're trying to act cool around here, David. Yeah, you forgot you know, that's Panhard. Super cool here. Panhard was right there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, Rod. Okay. Seriously, thank you for uh, uh, coming on the Utopian podcast. We're really excited to have you here, and God, there's so much I want to ask you and talk to you about, because you and your family are legendary in the car customizing community, and for those who might not know, and I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit more, but your grandfather started Valley Custom Shop in, I believe, 1948? Yeah, for, late 47, early 48. Wow. Now, so at Galpin, we started in 46, we've been customizing cars since 1952, You've been customizing cars longer than anyone else I know, which is amazingly cool to me. And I'm just curious, kind of, how you did your grandfather get started? What did he start working on? And then how did your dad get into it? Yeah, so, you know, my my family kind of originated right here in the Valley. My, my grandfather lived in Burbank, right off Alameda, um, kind of over where Providence Hospital is now. And in kind of the 20s, 30s, um, he started out delivering newspapers to Toluca Lake. So riding his bicycle around Toluca Lake, delivering newspapers, and met a few movie executives early on when he was, in, you know, just in school. And those executives were like, hey, you know, would you, you know, clean my car? And 
you know, start doing a little bit of detailing work. So he'd go over to some of the dirt parking lots at the studios and he'd wash cars. And the next thing you know, they're, they're like, Hey, you know, do you have a driver's license? He's like, nah, he's, they, you know, would you take my car over and put wheels and tires on it? So it was, it was really just kind of in the beginning, he had this little, you know, note card business where he was taking care of executives, cars and people that had money. And then a couple of years later, the war hit and um, he was shipped off to Alameda and uh, was in the Navy. And there was one night that um, I think one of the generals um, crashed their car and came into the barracks before it was, I think, you know, during kind of basic training. Um, yeah. And they came in, asked, my, asked everybody in there if there was anybody that knew Body and Fender and, uh, uh-huh. because they had a, a car that was cracked up. And so my grandfather's like, ah, I can do it. And I think he was, you know, 17, 18, I guess 18 years old. And um, could he do it at that time? Well, he was kind of one of these guys that can do anything, right? Right on. Or at least thought he could do anything. Yeah. And so he banged the fender out, did some paint work, and they said, okay, well, now you're in the motor pool. So he never got shipped off. He spent, oh, wow. he did his time at Alameda, um, kind of head of the motor pool and working on cars and learned how to weld and uh, learned how to, you know, use machine tools and had, had access to all that equipment. And then, in, um, you know, a few years later, after he got out, he and his brother-in-law, Clayton Jensen, rented a building just right over by um, Leno's. The building's no, no yeah. longer there, but it was, um, it was a little gas station and um, started Valley Custom Shop. In the wow. beginning, the, the first building was pretty small, um, had a couple of bays in it, a couple of gas pumps, and it was Jensen and Emery, and then said Valley Custom Shop on it. And uh, um, one of their first customers or collaborations was Alex Exidius with SoCal yeah. Speed Shop. Amazing. And uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the belly tanker that Bruce has, absolutely. Um, you know, my grandfather did the headrest and some of the louvers and some of that early um, uh, metal work on that car. That and, is so cool. And that. then... Was that one of the first belly tank cars? I think it was. The, yeah. Like, it was, if not one of yeah. the first, it was, it was the first, um, I guess, uh, you know highly exposed one because it was in all the magazines right let's, let's explain first famous for sure we should explain belly tank cars to our, our listeners because they're they're fascinating and we have to assume not everybody who's listening may know but these were drop tanks from aircraft from world war ii aircraft like the extended fuel tanks that were streamlined little teardrops and then what would they do they so these guys would come back from the war and they'd get them surplus and then what would they how would they turn them into an actual little hot rod well you got to remember you know lockheed was right here all the aviation you know yep. um was right here in the valley they were yeah. building airplanes and so a lot of that stuff was was surplus in the area and so shops like socal speed shop you know he wants to go out and break land speed records so they would you know build a small little you know frame and build a flathead for it and then they needed a body and so they would use you know instead of shaping it out of just sheets of aluminum it's like yeah. here here's this perfect little aerodynamic streamlined already shape already done yeah perfect. so you know alex had aluminum i'm guessing aluminum of, yeah okay yeah. Yeah. so um the original belly tanker was was gold and white kind yeah. of a gold or bronze colored and white right uh, eventually it became red and white but i'll get into that but the, the it was gold and, and white and yeah they had to cut an opening and you know <laughs> and cut all the openings for the axles and roll the edges and do a you know a fairing or a headrest yeah. and louvers so that was the original belly tanker wow. and then uh if the name uh dean bachelor rings a bell so dean was um one of the, the if you look in all the early custom car magazines car craft road and track um dean was uh working for peterson and 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 um 
he would go to all the shops and do like how to chop channel section type stuff and write articles on it. He was my grandfather's best friend. So my grandfather's name was Neil Emery. Cool. And um, he was the best man in my grandfather's wedding. And, and so Dean was always doing these kind of, um, you know, articles on how to customize stuff because mm-hmm. he'd go into my grandfather's shop. Right. Well, Dean had an idea with Alex Exidius that they wanted to um, be the first hot rod over 200 miles an hour. So right in on. 1948, 1949, they took the belly tanker that they'd already kind of tested and, you know, run, and they took the body off of it. And so here's the body sitting here. Here's the, the frame. And Dean came to my grandfather and said, we need to build an envelope-bodied race car. And so that was what was called the SoCal Streamliner. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they, I think it was late 48, 49, starting with just sheets of aluminum, they built a full-bodied, kind of envelope-bodied And just, okay, again, to clarify to our audience, envelope-body means not separate fenders and body. It's one thing that encompasses that, that everything. That everything, yeah. covers the, the wheels, you know, right. kind of everything, right? So no, no bolt-on pa- panels at all. Yes, right? exactly. So it was, well, it was, there, there, there were bolt-on there panels, is. if you look right there. Oh, okay. oh yeah, look at oh, that wow. thing. So, um, so when it's, it's in black and white right there in front of uh, SoCal Speed Shop, that was, um, you know, right in the beginning, kind of the first version before they painted it white. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. But they put that, they built that body around the belly tanker chassis. So right. over there on the, the right-hand side. Um, and so that, uh, they right. went on to race that car and... Um, How low it is. <laughs> yeah, and it was, and it was awesome. <laughs> um, and it, it ended up going over 200 miles an hour in 1949, 1950. Wow. And uh, then the car was totaled. Um, I think it was in Daytona Beach when it got got wrecked. I, don't quote me, but yeah. um, so the car got totaled, and then um, Alex. And by the way, that's still the standard is two hundred miles an hour, and you're still joining the two hundred mile an hour club. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, still seventy some years later, that's still the standard that your grandfather helped create. Yeah, amazing. So, so he built the body. Okay. SoCal Speed Shop built the the chassis and running gear, uh-huh. and uh, yeah, it was over two hundred miles an hour in nineteen fifty. Where was spectacular? The- where did it get cooling air? Or did you not bother because the um, runs are short? I, very little, just, you know, right next to the headrest. Oh, the um, louvers right there? Yeah, just the louvers. But, so you know, they were just short runs, the right? There? Yeah. You know, it's, you know they, they did all the testing at uh, El Mirage, and then wow. they would, you know, go to go uh, go out. And, and so this was this was actually a recreation that Dan mm-hmm. Webb did um, because the car was totaled. So the, the right. one uh, in Paralunum. Well, so <clears throat> so what they did is, is that car got totaled. They retrieved some of the chassis and engine parts mm-hmm. and then they rebuilt the, a new chassis and then um the the version of the belly tanker that bruce has now is the original body but on a new frame um because oh. they they had to yeah. you know rebuild it because the the crash you know damaged the frame significantly yeah but um, so that wow. was so he was building you know land speed record kind of hot rods, but he was also and to me by the way one of the most important cars there is. Uh, and, I agree, uh, and just uh, so much incredible history all wrapped up in one little package. So yeah, just so, amazing. So his shop, um, his partner was Clayton Jensen, his brother-in-law, yeah. and they were really the pioneers of um, of channeling and sectioning. Mm-hmm. You know. Um, you know, there were lots of hot rod shops and, you know, there was, you know, the Barrises, there was Winfield, there was, um, I mean, the list goes on and on. You know, you guys got into the customizing game um, in the Valley and, and uh, my grandfather, 
he was really focused on channeling and sectioning. So mm-hmm. some let's of give co- a definition of that too. Sorry to keep interrupting yeah. for this, but yeah. I want to make sure people know. So tell us, what do you mean when you say channeling and sectioning? So when you when you think of custom cars, there's a number of things that kind of happen. There's there's chopping the top, which is kind of the most visual, the thing that sure. people can really model pick up A. On. You see that a lot, right? Yeah, yeah. And so these days, everybody's really slamming the roof. Yeah, you know, I mean, slit the, windows. And yeah. Things. So yeah. so chopping the top was um, was you know very common. Channeling is where essentially you're you know they're they're mostly body on frame cars. Yeah. So you're cutting the floor and you know basically the you know the bottom of the car out and then you're channeling the body over the frame oh so you're changing the body where the body mounts oh, to the frame exactly right. so, it goes so you're up, dropping your it's it's yeah. kind of like a body drop right yeah yeah so that you're you're channeling it you're channeling it over the frame got it so it gives the car it, it allows the suspension to still be um you know functional. travel but less but it's more yeah. in, you know there's a lot of a lot of work to channel because right. you're moving the inner fender wells up and right. you're changing the um that's a huge the, the firewall yeah. and a body everything. lift is incredibly easy a body drop is like yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's not yeah. meant to do that yeah so so back in the day that was you know that's what they were doing was huh. was channeling they were also um one of the first ones to do you know like zing a frame or or taking yeah. and and c-sectioning a frame over the the rear axle, axle and yeah. all of that and and they had um I have these awesome pictures of some of the early um, lowering kits that they were building for, you know, for 40 Fords. And and so they were building actual front suspension, like lowering kits. Like my grandfather always had these ads that were, you know, uh, just super funny that that were basically, um, I wish I could quote them, but... You know, don't just heat up the springs. Right. I remember you know? that was the old cheap method. Yeah. You, these right. you know, don't heat up the down. springs. You know, yeah. like you know, don't yeah. don't that be a uh, oh, don't be a custom miser uh, and just uh, heat oh, up and, and heat it. up and heat up your springs. <laughs> buy a lowering kit from Valley Custom Shop. Yeah, right, right on. Um, you know, and then the other thing is that you know everybody you know back in the day there was a lot of lead slingers, right? You know, they were yeah. throwing lots of lead oh, at the yeah. cars, and and um, my grandfather and and great uncle they were really focused on you know proper metalwork and hammer welding everything and and using they used lead but let's let's metal finish as much as we can right um you know so um you know i I think one of them was uh, a pound of lead is worth uh you know a thousand anyways you know he had all these little sayings that Mm -hmm. that he would say but that's my grandfather right there when he was um customizing but so channeling is dropping the body over the frame yeah and then sectioning which is the hardest is um if you look at um you know cars right there so yeah that's a, a car called the Polynesian. And oh yeah, that's when uh, they were. Myron that's, Furnace has that now. Yes, Myron yeah, yeah, has I've that. Yeah, I've seen that car. It's so, beautiful. beautiful. So that car is sectioned five inches. So oh, imagine, wow. you know, the cars from the '30s, '40s, early '50s. The bodies were really thick. Yeah. You know the the doors. You know, you think about a, a four foot thick door, yeah. and the cars were really thick in the midsection. Right. And my grandfather loved the European styling of cars, you know, the Italian styling. And, you know, cars were a lot sleeker and thinner. And, you know, you look at some of the Jaguars, you look at stuff, yeah. and, and everything's just thinner, right? Yeah. So he would take, you know, a 50 Oldsmobile, and he says, okay, well, let's let's take five inches out of it. <laughs> and so you don't, you know, you would think, oh, yeah, you just cut it. But because there's so many compound curves and yeah. the fenders and so many different planes... It's actually like if you look at the side view, side section of the Polynesian when it was when it was sectioned, it's kind of like mm-hmm. right. this all the way oh. down. And so he would take five inches out, and so he would lay it out. A lot of times he would just lay it out right on the ground first. You know, he'd draw it all out, and then he'd go to the car and he'd sketch it out. And then back then, you know, they didn't have you know Milwaukee tools that they could just you know slap a battery in. I mean, right. they had big. 
body grinders. And um, one of one of my favorite tools that my grandfather had is he'd take a leaf spring yeah. and he'd sharpen it to like a razor's edge, and he'd put his like when he was channeling cars. He'd put the leaf spring on the ground and he'd hold it with this hand and he'd take a sledgehammer and he would beat on it and he would slice the metal, like cut it like butter Whoa, with wow. a leaf spring that he that he ground down to a knife's edge, right? Because they didn't have grinders. Oh, they yeah. would just yeah. slice right through it. Wow. Wow. So channeling was or channeling and sectioning were really kind of the things that, that they mastered. And because Dean Batchelor was documenting all this stuff, he was writing articles on how to you know, how to section a 54 shoebox Ford and it'd be in the magazine and it'd travel around the world. And then all these other custom, you know, customizers would, would see that and they'd be like, oh, you know, I'll take my Merc and I'll section it or I'll take the body line out. That's how you change car culture. Well, and the, the Polynesian, which by the way, we just saw in person, Amelia, just gorgeous and and a true work of art. If you think about taking the the center section out because you're cutting it twice and then matching those body panels, and it, that is that takes true vision yeah. and artistry, and, and obviously and a massive amount of skill. But just because it. it's art and science, you know, yeah, it, yeah. it just just incredible work. Yeah, it was it was really his thing. You know, he 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 loved to smooth look out the body that. lines. It's beautiful, and wow. you you look at those cars and you think, okay, you know, that was done, and you know, those were done in in the forties and fifties. Yep, and you know, that was just. Uh, it was ahead of its time. And, right, you know, absolutely. because so many of the car companies had design studios out here in California or they were watching what the customizers were doing. If you kind of look at automotive design in the in the U.S. and you think of the stuff that, that these customizers were doing in the San Fernando Valley, yeah. all that carried through. You know, look at the Corvette. Yep. Look at the sure. Thunderbird. Look at they were basically making concept cars for, for them. For That's them. right. Yeah. Really? If you yeah, think about and then you'd see where body lines, concept yeah. cars were starting to look like some of the customs. Yeah. And uh, it was yeah. a just yeah. a, a beautiful, magical time, in my opinion. Oh. Yeah. Jason, I, do you want to describe I agree. the look of this? this yeah, we should describe what the Polynesian looks like um, for people listening in. So it, it in a lot of ways, it feels like a car of the era, but everything is leaner. It's it's reduced in size, so it's got a sleek, cleaner look. It's also been detrimmed to some degree. The headlights are Frenched in. Um, it's less bulky, so it's got a lot of the things you associate with like an early '50s car, but distilled down to the essence, where it all of a sudden transforms and makes more sense. It's more live. Well, it's exactly lean. what you said. We're the American cars are big and bulky. Yeah. This definitely has a, a sleeker, more European appearance to and, it, and but Rod, it's still if, all American. If right. you have a, a, a better, more eloquent way to describe <laughs> this, please have at it. Just no, so. I mean, you know, one of the things that my grandfather, you know, always kind of instilled in me as a young kid is, is you know, the magic is in customizing or changing everything, but make everything look as if it wasn't <laughs> customized. That's right. Yeah, that's... Um, yeah. And so, um, you know, when I was a kid growing up... Um, you know, hanging out with my grandfather, my uncle, who was his apprentice, my dad, who's just this, you know, crazy, brilliant parts guy. Uh, you know, I had an opportunity to learn every nut and bolt of, of you know, cars and, and to really pick up on all that stuff from him. And uh, yeah, it's just, you know. What, what was that like growing up in a family that car centric? Was it like forced upon you? Was it just kind of a natural, like you, you were into it from day one or? So, yeah, I mean, if you, if, if we kind of look at the the trajectory of the family a little bit, you know, my my grandfather had Valley Custom Shop until 1961 and then left the Valley. He went down to um, 
Newport Beach because a good friend of his uh, who owned a car lot here in the San Fernando Valley bought the Porsche Volkswagen dealership in Newport Beach. So Chick Iverson yeah. uh, took my grandfather and my family and kind of transplanted them to Orange County. My dad then worked in the, in the parts department at, at Chick Iverson, and my uncle then was my grandfather's apprentice in the body shop. So yeah, my whole family worked together at this Porsche dealership. And then legendary Porsche dealership. I mean, just I mean, and and the fact that the family was there. I mean, just again, so much history. It's just fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So you know, my my dad, obviously, you know, he loved being in a family you know environment with with his dad and his brother. And so naturally, I was always my dad's sidekick. You know, I was born in in the seventies, and my dad. Uh, was in the Porsche parts business, and I was immediately just kind of given the opportunity to to be in it and amongst it. Um, I was never forced into it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that really came natural. Well, you know, I was born at Hogue Hospital in Newport Beach, and my dad gave me my first ride home from the hospital the day I was born in a 65 911 with <laughs> flares and uh, a ducktail and and wow. nines and elevens on it. So I kind of cool. kind of had no choice That's but rad. to yeah. but to you know to love these cars <laughs> and and cars. So um, yeah, for me it was it was kind of yeah. you know. So you kind of took the history of your grandfather and then what your father had done and you put them together and uh, yeah yeah doing mean, what you're doing yeah to, to kind of you know give you an inside look on what kind of makes me tick. I mean, you know, being in an environment when, where my dad had a Porsche parts business. So, so, um, when I was five, six years old, I used to sit at his parts counter and go through the old microfiche. You remember, you know, oh, yeah. you know, at a parts department, right? Yeah, yeah. Before computers. Yeah. And, and so to kind of keep myself occupied, my dad would be like, ah, oh, you know, just why don't you pull up, you know, one of those microfiche films and go pull all the parts out of the warehouse and, <laughs> and put them on the, you know, on the bench. And I'm five, six years old and I would. I'd look at the part number, I'd go down the aisles, I'd wow. go over to the shipping table and I'd I'd find all the parts for a front suspension for a 356 and I'd lay them all out. <laughs> Jeez, My dad would be like, ready. yeah, good. Wow. And then he'd say, okay, go put them away. Were you, you carrying know? the... He knew how to keep you busy. <laughs> but so for me, that was like, that, that was awesome because it was like, you know, it was like going shopping and, and digging through, you know, Porsche parts and, and, so are you pretty good with part numbers? Uh, I'm not as good as my dad uh, with part <laughs> numbers, but yeah, I know that the Porsche part number sequencing system is pretty simple. Oh, um, it's it, it seems complex, but it's a very thought. The Germans were of very, course, Germans. very yeah. thought out, and you know, so it's a sequencing. So once you learn the sequencing, that the first three numbers are the model, the second three numbers are a certain section of the car the third three sequences hone in a little bit more and then the variation is the last two digits really then you kind of you kind of understand that so, so if you looked at a part number you could you could tell me what cars it's for what part of the car it's for roughly yeah oh wow okay. yeah because it's a it's a part numbering sequence you know so like 644 the earliest 356s were started with 356 but then they went to 644 and then the 911 like the early 911s were either 901 or the 912 was 902. So that's the first set of part numbers. Right. Modern cars, the first three numbers are, you know, 996 or, you know, uh, 997 and so on. Mm. And then the next sequence of numbers, whether it's 352 or, you know, those are, are going to start honing in on whether it's engine, transmission, suspension, 
and it's all broke down the same way that the old parts books were. And then, it, it, so you just kind of start to learn those That's part cool. number sequences. I think VW did something similar, like one one one, and then like for the Beetle, and one one, and then two one one was yes. the type two. Type right. two. So yeah, you started familiar. Five and six years old. By the time you're ten, did you like know how to build a Porsche? Like you're, know every spare part? I mean, pretty much. Yes. That's, that's <laughs> so, crazy. So my dad, there, there were parts in my dad. So my dad started what was called Porsche parts obsolete. Oh yeah. So to give you a little um, insight on, so here my dad, he's parts manager at the Porsche dealership in Newport Beach. And at the time, Porsche, it's pretty fascinating. Porsche was a small car company back then. I mean, it, 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 was, it was really um, kind of living on the coattails of Volkswagen because yeah. Volkswagen was such a massive sure. you know, corporation. And so all of the parts distribution in the U.S. was done through VOA or Volkswagen of America. Right. So VOA would have these big distribution warehouses and there was one in Culver City, for example. And, you know, it was like, Costco sizes, you know, buildings that are just 30 feet tall stacked with Porsche parts or Volkswagen parts. So back then there were Porsche dealerships all over. They were small, but there were all these little dealerships in, in a lot of communities because they were in conjunction with the VW dealerships. Yeah. But they all had a, you know, a parts department or a parts room that was about the size of your bathroom, you know? And so the problem is that as the models were changing so rapidly, you know, you had the, in, just for the 356, you had, you know, the, what we call the pre-A now, then the T1, T2, T5, T6, and then they got into the 911s, and there was the 901 that then became the 911, and the 912, and the 914, so there's all these cars that are changing every year, so these parts would all go into these parts departments, and then they'd be like, you know, and Porsche would say, oh, you got to have X amount of parts on, yep. you know, on hand. But then they're like, well, we don't have room for next year. So they'd send them all back to the distributor, right? So what was happening is here's these big distribution warehouses that are just spilling over with parts. Yep. And Volkswagen of America was like, well, or VOA was like, well, we got to get rid of this stuff. We don't have any more space. So it was all, and anything that fell off the shelves and anything that was obsolete or considered overstock was being pushed into these rooms, pushed into... <laughs> trash containers Whoa. taken to the dump and thrown away what because they it was more expensive for them to figure out how to warehouse it than the parts were worth wow. so my dad was like this is not good no like, yeah. we're gonna need those parts down yeah. the road mm -hmm. so he went to um he went to chick his boss and said look we got an issue going on where all the parts are just being thrown away. I was up at the, you know, I was up at the distributor and, you know, there was a stack of steering wheels and they were three, six, a steering wheels and they were being thrown away. <laughs> so chick says, well, what are we going to do about it? And my dad says, well, why don't we try to see if we can buy that stuff? So they struck a deal with Volkswagen of America to buy all of what was called their distributor obsolescence. And Porsche said, yeah, no problem. We'll sell it to you, but you got to buy it all. Oh, <laughs> and so they handed them, you know, back today we'd get a spreadsheet, right? right. Back then it was a book full of dot matrix, oh, whatever, uh, you know, part numbers in a book. And, and so they ended up, I think, settling on six cents on the dollar for all the stuff. So my dad and chick rented a warehouse in Costa Mesa and the trucks just started showing up. <laughs> so I was a young kid at the time. And here I am in these warehouses and these big shipping boxes that are four foot by four foot cardboard boxes would show up and they'd start unloading them. And for me, I mean, I didn't really know what the stuff was, but 
some of it was fun, like these little paint lacquer sticks that <laughs> that uh, used to use for touch up. You know, my dad would say, oh, you know, if you unload that whole box, you can take a box home. <laughs> so every one of my elementary school projects was done with Porsche oh, oh, that's paint, cool. paint lacquer sticks, right? Yeah, and uh, and and I was I was painting. You know, I'd paint signs, and you know, those things are worth three or four hundred bucks a vial now. Um, but I used to use them like they were like you magic know, they workers were, or yeah, something. They yeah, they were you know they were like fingernail polish size, you yeah. know, and they were all the trick colors, but. So, oh, so my dad, you know, I grew up in that parts warehouse and, and then learning kind of the part numbering system and the microfiche, my dad would just let me, you know, kind of have my way with this warehouse and, wow. and, um, I fell in love with the cars, you right. know, so how, and, okay. So now you're getting all the obsolete parts. Like how big did it get? How, how many parts did you have? Porsche parts. Oh, uh, so the main the main warehouse was ten thousand square feet, and then they had some other remote warehouses. But it was stacked floor to ceiling, and it was all organized. Wow. It was very well organized because it was all brand new stuff in brand new packaging, and it was it was everything from you know original steering wheels to four cam Carrera you know heads to nine oh six you know a stack of nine oh four and nine oh six. You know, um, yeah, yeah. unbelievable. You think about it today, what it'd be worth, right? Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's unreal. It's a treasure. Right? So for um, how many? Thank years God for your dad. So it started. It, it started in um, the early seventies, and then went until about nineteen eighty four, eighty five. Okay. Um, and so it was a, it, and and it was just it was on an ongoing basis. Um, they also had to buy a lot of the Volkswagen stuff mm. and the Audi stuff because back then the old Audi one hundred S's. Oh and, yeah. You know, so it was kind of a deal where they had to buy that, but. They, my dad and Chick would take that stuff and sell it off before it got to the, before it got to the warehouse. They'd just sell it for pennies just to kind of get rid of it because they really just wanted the Porsche stuff. Mm -hmm. So Porsche parts obsolete was really the, you know, the world's kind of clearing house, you know. Yeah, that's amazing. Parts department for everybody that was starting to do restorations because in the seventies, these cars are now 10, 15, 20 years old and they're starting to need to be restored. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so how did you get to work then? How, how so, so what happened after that? So, so, you know, obviously my dad, you know, and my grandfather, this was their, this was their life. So, um, I, I would hang out with my, my grandfather and my uncle, um, cause I loved, I loved the mechanical side and, and the fabrication side. Um, I can remember as a kid, you know, going to my grandfather's shop and, uh, you know, he hammer welded everything, gas welded everything. Oh, right on. Yeah. So, you know, we TIG weld, MIG weld everything, but he was just a, a purist, right? Yeah. And so I'd be standing there while he's working and he'd say, okay, you know, Rod, hold the torch. You know, well, because when you're hammer welding, as you know, you, you know, you're using oxyacetylene and you're, 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 you're melting the metal, you're adding filler rod and then yeah. you, then you put your torch on your stand and you grab your dolly and your hammer and you plenish the weld and then you kind of move on, right? So instead of using his torch stand, which he had, he would just hand the, the torch <laughs> you, to me. You were his torch stand. And now. then from that point, it became, okay, well, why don't you, you know, you got the torch, why don't you just heat that little area up right there, you know? Oh, and then, so cool. And then next thing you know, he's like, okay, well, you know, now that you're heating it, you know, because I had goggles on, he'd say, okay, put a little filler rod in there, you know? And then he'd say, I'll, I'll do the torch work. Why don't you, you know, it's, I don't want to crawl under the fender, you know, why don't you get under there and hold the dolly? So how old are you at this time? I mean, it was as early as eight, ten years old. That's amazing. And so, yeah. because my, oh, that's just the because coolest. my grandfather and my uncle started after they left the dealership. They started Emery's Porsche Restoration in Fallbrook, oh, and okay. so I would spend my I would spend my summers down there hanging out with with my uncle and and my grandfather, 
And it was just this time for me to kind of explore and learn, you know, that side of it. And so learning the parts and every nut and bolt from my dad and then learning metalwork from my grandfather or at least being exposed to it. I didn't learn it at eight years old, but I was exposed to it, right? Yeah. yeah. And then you probably learned more than you give yourself credit yeah. for. Okay? And, and, and my <laughs> uncle is is to this day still, I think, one of the best painters on the planet. Um, and you know, I learned how to paint when I was, you know, uh, 10, 12 years old. I'd go down and and uh, he'd teach me how to paint. Wow. You know, paint parts. I didn't paint. I didn't paint cars at ten years old. But he, you know, I can remember making a sign for my dad that was a Porsche parts obsolete sign his logo and you know he had me cut it out in metal I think I was 10 or 11 and I painted it red and then you know we lettered it and, you know but right. but I but I sprayed it you know it was it was just that it was it was those that early exposure to the craft that wow. that instilled kind of the love for that um and then a good friend of my dad's um that started have you guys ever been to the Long Beach high performance swap meet um, at Veteran Stadium. It's a big car swap meet. And there was a guy that started that swap meet, Tom Topping, who also started Specialty Fasteners, a um, kind of drag race fastener company. But Tom had a, uh, when I was 12, 13 years old, he had bought um, uh, McEwen's 67 front engine dragster. And he was looking for a crew. And so he hired myself and three other kids to... Uh, be full pit crew. And How old are you? 13? Thir thir from 13 to 15. <laughs> from 13 to 15, I was on a top fuel drag racing team. Wow. And traveled all over the country. Wow. In 1987, we were NDRA, National, the the Nostalgia Drag Racing Champions um, in, in McEwen's 67 front engine dragster. And then in, in 1988, so I was, f 88, I was 15 years old. Uh, we ran, we bought Shirley Muldowney's 86 package. Yeah. And we ran um, 87, 88. We did. We ran five or six um, NHRA races, and and the crew, the, the mechanical crew, was was all us kids from 12 to 15 years old. <laughs> Child labor. Um, but so for me, ah, the good old days. So for me, but what experience? To, oh, yeah. it, it, it's impossible. Just absolutely incredible. Yeah, Sorry. So, yeah, but but that's just it. So for me, that was the that you know I learned. I was the I was a left side mechanic on a on a you know an old you know iron. 392 Chrysler, right. you know, top fuel dragster. And so, um, and I was, you know, I was kind of the bigger kid, muscular for the, for my time. Now I'm short, but you know, at the time, so I was the only, I had to pull the head off left and right, you know? <laughs> um, but it was, it was a great experience for me, you know, doing 10, 12 races a year. And then Tom really instilled kind of, you know, the mechanical side in me that you've got to make sure that everything's dialed in, you know, I mean, he had all these little processes that, that, that taught me, um, you know, how to machine stuff, how to take stuff apart, how to, you know, build engines. And then from there, um, I built my first 356 kind of leading me into the kind of Porsche world. I built my first 356. My dad found a 1953 Porsche, uh, was my kind of first car that I built a little blue 53 coupe. Rusty car when I was 14 years old, paid 1200 bucks for it, said, let's build this car. And I finished it when I was 16 and then got my vintage racing license. So that was kind of the beginning wow. of You really were call. bred That's, for yeah, this. That, that car right my there. My goodness. The number wow. 80 car. That was, the, yeah. that was the first car that I built uh, when I was, I started building it when I was 14. And wow. finished it. Finished it when I was sixteen. So that was your first car, right? Yeah. That's incredible. that was my first. Car. And it's gorgeous too. 
You can find all these podcasts and some really wonderful articles you can't get anywhere else on www.theautopian.com. And P.S. If you love what we do here, you can become a vinyl velour or rich Corinthian leather member of The Autopian by going to theautopian.com and clicking the button that says support us because as these podcasts are probably demonstrating, we need all the help we can get. <laughs>